Today is part 18. It's the 18th sermon I've preached as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, in the book and through the book of Judges. And if you're joining us for the first time, either here uh, or online, listening, I, uh, I don't want to drop you into the middle of a story without having some type of understanding of what's going on. The theme of the book of Judges, if you said, what is this book about, bottom line, up front, this book is the story of the canonization of Israel. That is, Israel becoming like the Canaanites around them. Israel becoming like the world around them. This story picks up after the time of the conquest in Joshua. Joshua goes, he conquers most of the land, not all of it, but most of it. And and part of the reasons revealed to us in Judges chapter 2, it's so that the Lord could test the subsequent generations to see if they would be faithful, to see if they would finish what Joshua started, drive out the inhabitants of the land. But of course they don't do that. (laughs) They come up with excuses, and they're like, oh no, it'll be okay. We we can just enslave them, or we can just move in next door to some of them, and, and it'll be okay. They won't pull our hearts away from God. Well, of course they pull their hearts away from God. Over and over again. And so Judges is this ongoing cycle. They turn away from God. God raises up a foreign nation. The foreign nation oppresses them. Then they turn back to God because they need God. God is so merciful, raises up a different deliverer or judge, drives out the foreign threat. Then they're good for a while. And then back to their old ways. Well, we pick up today in Judges chapter 11, verse 29. This is kind of like a part two of three of the story of Jephthah. We were introduced to Jephthah last week, and I'll recap some of his life. But first, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Notice that phrase in verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, was upon Jephthah. It is the first time that the narrator points us to Yahweh. Yahweh has been very passive up to this point. At this point, it's the first time that he's going to be actively involved in the life of Jephthah in a noticeable way. And I say noticeable way because I love how John Piper always says, he's like, at any given point, In your life, God's doing like 10,000 things in your life, and you're aware of maybe like one of them, just like one or two. And so this is the first point in the story where in a noticeable way, God is going to be actively involved in the life of Jephthah. And, And the question that was raised two sermons ago, back in chapter 10, the divine scolding has now been answered. The divine scolding takes us back to even a sermon before Jephthah. When Israel finds themselves in a world of hurt, they've turned away from God again. God sold them into the hands of the Ammonites. They need God's help. They go to God. They're like, God, please help us. And he says, no, I'm not helping you. Not this time. I helped you here, 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 and here. And this time, you figured it out on your own. In fact, you want help? Go ask those pagan gods to help you. Go ask them to help you. Those, those gods that you've been clinging to, right? I mean, modern paraphrase, you want my help now? Go ask that porn on your computer that you've been looking at or that gossip or that slander. You go to that. You go to that sin, 
You ask that sin for help, right? Go to those pagan gods, you ask them for help. It is one of those, like, hashtag tough love moments back in chapter 10. And the people have a real come-to-Jesus moment. (laughs) Happens. Most loving thing he did for them is to tell them no. And at that point, they say, not just confessing their sin, but they actually follow through with action. They put their sins away, right? They, they put it away and they cling totally and wholly to God. And then just, I think in a moment of really just maturity, they say, Lord, you do whatever you think is right. We'll take whatever consequences you want to give to us right now. That was back in chapter 10. He still hasn't answered their plea. They're still dealing with this Ammonite aggression in the region. He still hasn't said, I'm going to help you yet. It changes here in verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. God shows up. That question that they raise, coming to God and help in chapter 10, saying, please help us, please bail us out. Yeah, he's going to finally answer that. And he's going to do it because he's totally merciful and he's totally good. And he's going to empower this self-made leader, Jephthah, for his own agenda, for God's own agenda. And agenda is a word I used a whole lot last week. I said, everybody had an agenda. When we were first introduced to Jephthah last week in chapter 11, I said, everybody had an agenda. We learned that Jephthah, while he is a mighty warrior, he's got to strike against him because his mom was a prostitute. Okay, It's like one night stand type of thing, whatever. And so his brothers... His brothers want him gone. His brothers are thinking, listen, if we, if we get rid of Jephthah, after all, he's just a social outcast. If we kick him to the curb, that means more money in our bank accounts. Okay. Jephthah's brothers have an agenda. The leaders of Gilead have an agenda. The leaders of Gilead, they have a problem that they need to get fixed. The Ammonites are here. We need somebody who's like a mighty warrior who can help us. But we have nowhere else to turn. Oh my gosh, we've got to go back to Jephthah. We've got to crawl back to him. His mom was a prostitute. His brothers kicked him out. They go back to Jephthah. They have an agenda. What what do they want? They want Jephthah to fix their problem. And oh, by the way, they try to lowball him. They come in with their first offer, which is not... They come in with their offer to Jephthah, which, oh, by the way, was not their first offer. In chapter 10, 18, their offer was, whoever steps forward and saves us, they get to be the president of Gilead. And when they come to Jephthah and they make him the first offer, they're like, let's try to undercut him, right? Like, Jephthah, yeah, if you come help us out, we'll, uh, we'll let you be the, the general in the battle. Of course, Jephthah himself, he has an agenda. Jephthah knows that the leaders of Gilead would not be coming to him unless they had no other recourse. And so he holds the trump card and he squeezes them for all they're worth. It's a very Count of Monte Cristo type, full circle, rags to riches type of experience. And so Jephthah, yeah, he doesn't want to be the social outcast. This is his chance to be the man. They all have agendas. And yet, even God has an agenda here. And so it raises the question, well, is it wrong to have an agenda? Everybody has an agenda. Some of you might be familiar with the movie A White Christmas. Has anyone seen that movie? Okay, you should see that movie. Today is the day of salvation. It is. Not related to the movie, I just thought I'd say that, but um, I appreciate those of you who laughed. White Christmas, there's a scene. Bing Crosby's character, he's talking to one of the older Haynes sisters in the club in Miami, and he learns that they came there under false pretenses. The older Haynes sister says, listen, I know you got the letter from, 
from our brother Benny, um, who was writing to you. But um, actually, Benny didn't write that letter to you to come check out our performance. Actually, my sister, my little sister Judy wrote it. And he says, isn't that interesting? Even little Judy has an angle. And the older Haynes sister says, well, hold on a second. No, 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 she didn't mean anything about it. He says, no, 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 it's okay. Everybody has an angle, right? Everybody has, like, their own agenda. Is that wrong? Could be. I guess it depends on what the agenda is. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 14, 23, anything apart from faith is sin. Could it be sinful? Suppose. Depends on what the agenda is. But you said... Here, even God has an agenda in the fact that he's going to empower this man, Jephthah. So what's God's agenda? These are questions that people ask, especially, I think, in moments of suffering or when something tragic happens and they don't have an answer and they're looking for an answer. They say, what? Why did this happen? I want to know, why did it happen? And of course, we may not always be able to provide the why to the specific circumstances, but we know the big why. Every single thing that God does, He does for two massive reasons. He does everything He does for the good of His people and the glory of His name. If you're taking notes, that's something where you want to either write it down or remember that. Every single thing that God does, He does for the good of His people and the glory of His name. It couldn't be more clear than in Romans chapter 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, by the way, we say he does everything for the good of his people. That is limited to his people. That is limited to those who love the Lord. All things work together for good. It doesn't mean you're going to experience good, of course, all your days. You might hit some challenges, some ups and downs before you get to that place. That's true for Joseph. He had to go through a lot of difficulties before he rose to the number two most powerful man in Egypt. God does everything he does, bottom line, for the good of his people. Though it may be painful on the way to get to that that place. And oh, by the way, he does everything for the glory of his, his name. God is all about himself. You say, why is God all about himself? This is something that a lot of people struggle with. Some of you may remember one of our old Bible verses Memory verses from small group from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Here it is, listen. Whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. You were made for the glory of God. You were created to make much of the king. And and this is a struggle for some people. It's a struggle. C.S. Lewis really struggled with this. Brad Pitt walked away from his boyhood Christianity because of this. Oprah Winfrey also struggled with this. Because as Lewis writes, he says, It seemed to me that God was this vain old woman just seeking after compliments. We read all throughout the scriptures how God is after his own glory. He's all about himself. And if anybody that you knew was all about themselves, you say, that person's not very loving, that person's very egotistical. However, it's important to understand the rules of humility that apply to us, the creature, do not apply to the creator. Think of it like this. 
You say, isn't God for us? I say, absolutely, God's for you. But in order for God to be for you, God's got to be absolutely for himself. Because if God prioritizes or says, all right, I'm totally for you, number one, you're, you're number one, right? You're the, you're the most important thing. If I had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it, right? You are, you're it. You're my everything. God would commit idolatry. He'd commit idolatry. God has to be totally for himself before he can be for anyone else. He's got to be all about God because if God places anything above the glory of his name, if he says anything's more important than my name, he commits idolatry. He says, there's actually something more important than my name and he commits idolatry if you think of it like that. So yes, every single thing that God does is for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And oh, by the way, Jephthah is not an exception to this. He's this powerful warrior. He is, I think, self-taught. He is, I think, he is very much political, very diplomatic. He's a smart guy. Whether or not he was aware of this divine empowerment is unclear. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Does Jephthah actually know whether or not the Spirit of the Lord is upon him? We don't know. The text doesn't say. But really, it doesn't matter. Because God is, God's empowering this man, and he's going to use this man to ultimately bring himself glory and bring the salvation to his people who have been oppressed for 18 years by the Ammonites. Some of you, maybe you've had a really bad week, a bad series of months. 18 years. That's been their life. We come to verse 30 and 31. It is... I suppose when we think of Jephthah, verse 30 and 31 are like the two verses. If anybody knows anything about Jephthah, it's going to be in verse 30 and 31. I'm going to preach, I think, when we're all said and done, three sermons on Jephthah. But this is usually what people remember. So, verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever. The Hebrew is ambiguous here, which is why if your Bible is anything like mine, it has a little superscript after whatever because it can also mean, or whoever, comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it, or him, up for a burnt offering. Last week, I said there was a lot of ambiguity around this man, Jephthah. Last week, at the end of the sermon, I raised the question, does Jephthah love the Lord? And I said, quite frankly, I don't know. If I had to guess, I'd probably say, I don't think so. How sad it is. I think when people we know look at our lives and we say that we're Christians, and if we had to ask these friends of ours, are, are, do you think, oh, your friend Joe Deckering, do you think he's a Christian? Oh, I don't know. Isn't that sad? I think it's really sad when we come to, we're looking at Jephthah's life and we're like, I don't really know whether he loves God. Do people know that you love God? Is it, is it painfully obvious that you love the Lord? Verse 30 is very interesting. He makes this vow to the Lord. He says, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I returned in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Verse 30 records, I'm going to preach three sermons that cover the life of Jephthah. It records the first and only time in which Jephthah actually has a conversation with God. 
First and only time. I'll preach three sermons about this guy. First and only time you're ever going to actually hear him have a conversation with the Lord. He's had conversations. He negotiated the role of president of Gilead, essentially, from the leaders of Gilead. He had a conversation with the Ammonite king. Didn't go maybe the way he wanted to. War is unavoidable. But the Ammonite king at least told him, yeah, no, we're not, we're not doing this. He has this conversation with God, and it's interesting. He's only met with silence. Makes his vow. And Yahweh's silent. He doesn't say anything. You know, my mom, my mom always pointed out to me in this story how Jephthah in making this vow was so unnecessary. He didn't need to make this vow. He didn't need to make it. Verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord's upon him. He didn't need to make the vow. Why does he make this vow? Ever thought about that? Why, why does he make this vow? It's quite possible that he makes the vow because he's unaware that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. You say, all right, if he's unaware that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, why is that? Why does he not know? Quite possibly because he doesn't have a relationship with God, or at the very least, maybe a very surface-level one. You know, last week, he's really confident. He's confident with the leaders of Gilead. He knows he holds the trump card. He knows the leaders of Gilead, they wouldn't be coming to talk to him unless they absolutely had to. They need him to fix their problem. He's super confident. In fact, even during his conversation with the Ammonite king and those diplomatic couriers, he lets it be said back in 1127, he says, you know what? Let the Lord, the judge, let him decide whose land this actually belongs to, because that's the reason they're, they're, one of the reasons they're at war. The Ammonite king thinks they have their land. They don't really. We talked about that last week. But he says, let the Lord, the judge, let him decide. And yet, despite his confidence, despite him being empowered by the Spirit of God, he remains very, very insecure about the way in which Yahweh would adjudicate. How is Yahweh going to? to rule on this. How is he going to judge this? And at the same time, it becomes very apparent that his personal agenda is going to supersede any concern that he has for the Israelites. Jephthah has everything to lose. If God fails him, Everything that he's gained politically, it would slip through his fingers. If God abandons him, if God doesn't come through for him, he loses everything. The people, no doubt, will abandon him. Remember, they didn't want to come to him in the first place. He's socially inferior because his mom, she's a prostitute. They don't like him. He has everything to lose, and so he is really hedging his bets you say, he doesn't need to make this vow. Yeah, but he, he doesn't want to leave anything to chance. So he makes the vow. And so that raises the question, well, what does he expect to offer as a burnt offering? Does he expect to offer an animal or a person? Does he expect to offer an animal or a person? What is going through his mind when he makes this vow? Now, the Old Testament, if you make a burnt offering, it's not going to be a person. It's going to be an animal. That, coupled with the fact that the Old Testament really doesn't like 
killing people as sacrifices, frowns upon that, not good. And so, we'd look at this story, and we'd say, Jephthah has no intention of making a human sacrifice. His vow was rash, it was unnecessary, and when he makes it, he surely has an animal in mind. Verse 32, So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Ar to the neighborhood of Minneth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Geramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. So some people will say, Jephthah had in mind, when he makes his vow, burnt offering. Burnt offerings are animals. They wouldn't have been people. In fact, Old Testament law, totally against that. He has in mind an animal. The problem with that interpretation is it doesn't exactly explain Jephthah's extreme grief at being greeted by his daughter. His daughter comes out. Oh, hey, what's going on? All right, let me, can you stand aside? Let me see, like, all right, what's going to be the first animal, maybe, that comes out? He doesn't really seem to be concerned with that. He's got all this extreme grief. Why, why is that? Furthermore, oh, by the way, the cultural customs of that day were when warriors came back from battle, it wasn't animals that came out to greet them. I mean, you pull up into your driveway, a cow comes out of the house, a bull, whatever. Like, like that'd be a peculiar sight. Well, it would be also strange here in the ancient Near East. Like, this is not something that you would think of. It, it's not. A warrior comes back, his family, his friends, they all come out to greet him. The animals don't come out to greet him playing tambourines. The family comes out to greet him. And I think, more seriously, it really overestimates the virtue of Jephthah. Now, yeah, some may interpret this as being an unnecessary, rash, hastily worded. Um, in fact, and I mentioned this at small group last week, Love Adventures and Odyssey, the OT Action News episode on Jephthah, that's what the story was. Jephthah, he really messed up. He should have thought before he spoke. He didn't think before he spoke. That was the issue. You shouldn't make vows, like, without thinking through them. Not like it was false information. I think we should think before we speak. We should be very careful if we make a vow. But I don't think that's what the story is about at all. But that's very much how I was taught. So maybe if you were taught about this, then we have something in common. Um, I think it's preferable to see this not as a, wow, I, definitely, yeah, I spoke before thinking, but rather, Jephthah knew exactly what he was doing. Jephthah's shrewd. Jephthah's calculating. And Jephthah is using this as another attempt to manipulate the circumstances to his own advantage. As my professor, Dr. Yates, said, this was Jephthah's chance to hedge his bets, Right? Yes, he didn't need to make the vow. I agree with that. But this was him saying, all right, just in case, right? 
right? Just in case. Not that I'm superstitious or anything, but just in case, right? This is the, just in case, this is the whatever it is for you, right? In this instance, Jephthah was neither rash nor was he pious. He was outrightly pagan. I think he did think through this and the possibilities of what might happen. Rather than a sign of spiritual immaturity and maybe foolishness, he's really acting just like Gideon. Remember Gideon? Gideon goes down. God's like, got to fight the Midianites. He says, all right, I got the army. God says, oh, your army's too big. Well, they get rid of some of the guys. Your army's still too big. All right, take them down by the river, depending on how they drink the water, get rid of more. Then they have an army of 300. They go against a Midianite army of like over 100,000 people. They win. And the whole reason why they set that up is so that when we win, you can't say it was because you had anything to do with it because you had 300 Joes and you just battled the guys that had over 100,000 people. That's the issue. They win the battle. Wonderful. Miracle. Glory to God. And then remember what Gideon does? He sets up a pagan, a pagan idol. Like, well, hold on a second. You just fought the Midianites, and the reason you were being oppressed by the Midianites was because you were following pagan gods. God delivered you. You fought the Midianites. They're gone. And now, Gideon, you want to set up a pagan idol? Like, it's literally been like five minutes since you beat the guys. Remember Gideon? Sets up the idol after the victory. And, and I think what we see here is we see this very synchronistic religious environment. By synchronistic religious environment, what I say is this idea where much of Israel's relationship with God is I'm holding God's hand, I'm walking with the Lord, and ooh, sexual sin, ooh, slander gossip, ooh, whatever, right? That's, that's Israel's relationship with God. They have this blended relationship where they're holding on to God's hand and they're holding on to all these pagan idols around them. That's their relationship. That's why Gideon, even after God's done this miracle and they delivered them, decides like five minutes later to set up a pagan idol. That is very much the time that we're dealing with. Remember what I said in the very beginning of the sermon. What's the major theme of this story? The canonization of Israel. Israel being like the world around them. That's the major theme. And back in chapter 10, remember, why are they battling the Ammonites? Why do they need Jephthah's help? Maybe you remember this. Okay, they, they're battling the Ammonites. Why? Jephthah's leading them. Why? Oh, the leaders of Gilead came to Jephthah. Let's work backwards. Why did the leaders come to Jephthah? They needed someone to deliver them. Why did they need someone to deliver them? Because they've been oppressed for 18 years by the Ammonites. Why have they been oppressed by 18 years by the Ammonites? Oh, yeah, because back in chapter 10, once again, and it literally uses the word again, they started serving the other gods. Who are the other gods? Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the chief god of the Ammonites. And what do we know about these gods who Israel is worshiping? Are they cool with child sacrifice? Oh, yeah, they're cool. Oh, yeah, right? Like, listen, it's right. You can worship Yahweh and you can worship Chemosh and Milcom. No big deal, right? Like, you can worship God and you know what? You can be pro-choice. You can worship God and be pro-LGBTQIA. They can work together. We can, we can blend this. It's okay. You can do both. In, in case you thought the theme of the book of Judges only applied to the ancient Near East. I think Jephthah knew exactly what he's doing. And it shouldn't come as a surprise. Gideon, a little in the, the context... They're worshiping these other gods. That's why they're in the jam in the first place. There was a reason back in Deuteronomy, Moses was like, 
listen, when you go into the land, you take them all out. Because my biggest concern is that they are going to pull you away from God. They are going to influence you negatively. They're going to draw your hearts away from God. That's why you don't let them live there. We should not expect too much from this man who made a name for himself essentially as a bandit in the hills of Gilead. We think about his motives. Even the very form of the vow that he makes here is and has a striking resemblance to the same Canaanite vows that we've discovered through, through archaeology that's in, inscribed on Canaanite monuments and artifacts. The, the very vow that he makes is a very, very pagan vow. Very, very culturally the norm in that day and age. For, for these people, vows to sacrifice children were not rash or impulsive, but deadly, serious expressions of devotion. Jephthah was so determined to achieve victory over the Ammonites that he's willing to sacrifice his own child as a guarantee, just in case. He hedges his bets because Jephthah can't lose. He's gone from rags to riches. He's not going back. He knows what it's like to be on the bottom. Now he's on the top, and he's not giving that up. He's not trading that. And look at his response in verse 35. And as soon as he saw her, his daughter, tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of my great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth and the Lord to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. His grief, I would argue, was not even for the death of this innocent child, but for himself. He essentially says, You've driven me to my knees. You are responsible for my ruin. How is my line going to continue now? You're my only child. Well, verse 36, And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of, of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. What's interesting is the narrator's attention to the girl's legacy. Every year, they'd go and lament Jephthah's daughter. Every year, that go and lament her for four days. Notice the attention that the narrator gives to the girl's legacy. Notice the lack of attention the narrator gives to Jephthah's legacy. No memorials for Jephthah. Nothing for Jephthah. 
but the memory of his daughter would be immortalized in this festival celebrated in her honor. And some may condone his actions. I grew up, this is very much the thinking. Uh, they, they made his treatment of his daughter maybe more spiritual than the text and the context warrant. And, and they'd say, well, she was dedicated to Yahweh for a lifetime of, of celibate religious service. Or, or they just dismissed this vow as just simply a rash act of folly. In, in any case, there's only a couple of options available. He, he could have followed the Mosaic law. He could have paid 20 shekels to the priest, as per Leviticus 27, 1 to 8, regulates in cases like this. He could have done that. He also could have done exactly as I think he did, fulfilling the vow to the letter. He, that is the narrator, describes the fulfillment of the vow with a simple statement. Look at verse 39. She returned to her father. She returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. What was the vow? Offer as a burnt offering. I think it's interesting because if he was going to go, you'd think the narrator would have mentioned it. Then you think the narrator would have mentioned, hey, listen. Jephthah came to the realization, kind of made a mistake. He's going to go pay the 20 shekels. We know Leviticus outlines, prescribes this. Okay, just as a footnote, I want to make sure so that no one gets this bad impression of Jephthah, right? Joe just said that, but, but he didn't say that. He simply says, he did to her according to the vow that he made. You would think that if he was going to, maybe as I was taught set her aside for a life of perpetual virginity and service to the Lord, you, you maybe would have think that the narrator would have let us know that. I mean, I was taught that, but he just says, Jephthah went and did what he said he was going to do the whole time. What this story, I think, shows us is the increasing canonization of Israel, which is the theme. That's what this story shows us. Jephthah's acting entirely pagan. He's talking about God when he needs to talk about God. You know, just like many people do. They're at a political rally. They come to speak in convocation at Liberty. Some Liberty people in here, right? So I'm going to tell you my Bible verse. Probably the only time I'm going to mention that Bible verse until the next campaign or whatever rally I have to go to. As long as it fits my needs, I'll talk about God. I'll, I'll hit my talking points. By and large, I think Jephthah is just as pagan and, as the Canaanites are around him, and, and I think understandably so. That's why they're in this situation in, in the first place. This young girl becomes a victim of the faithfulness to an unfaithful vow. And in her fate, she represents the daughters of abusive fathers. So what's the solution? I think the answer lies in the transformation of society. And, and how, is, how is society transformed? Well, with the political party of your choice, of course. No, no, of course not. How is society transformed? 
Jesus, right? Jesus transforms society. Jesus transforms society by changing rebel hearts. Jesus is the answer in this story. He is. And He can do that for any abusive father or person so that those in authority, including fathers, view themselves as servants of those under them. He can help fathers have that Christ-like view and understanding to view themselves as servants of those under them. Because that's like, that's Jesus, right? Jesus, right? He sacrifices all personal advantage for the well-being of others. Like Jesus dies on the cross, not so he could be the big shot, Not so he can be the man, the chief. Rather, Jesus models for us the humility of leadership. He dies on the cross in order not that we might be saved, not just that we might be saved, but he dies on the cross that through his power we'd be more like him in every way. Jephthah's story, Jephthah's story is this this grace-filled warning. That's what this story is. It's a grace-filled warning in which we might catch ourselves before we wreck ourselves, truth be told. That, that we might take the example of Christ, that we might take the path that is only available to us because of what Jesus did on that tree. He died for us so that we would love like Him. Not love like Jephthah. Like Jesus died for you so you'd love more like Him, the way Jesus loves us. Why should we care about protecting life? Why should we care about showing kindness and concern for uh, the unborn or those who can't defend themselves like Jephthah's daughter? Like, why? Because we hear some politically conservative talking point? No. Why should we show kindness and concern for those who can't defend themselves? And the answer is because that's what Jesus did for us. When he died on the cross, he came to rescue us. And in his accomplishments on the cross, enable us. Understand this. It was through Jesus' accomplishments on the cross that he enabled us to be the sort of person that Jephthah never was. The father his daughter should have had. The father we all want and need. That's what he did. And I'm thankful for that. And I hope that encourages some of you who maybe didn't have the sort of fathers that you should have had. I hope that encourages you. Because it's it's through what Christ did on the cross that enables us to be that sort of person. The sort of person that Jephthah never was. So as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. We love you, Lord. And I thank you for grace-filled warnings. I thank you for the the sort of grace-filled warning that we have in the story of Jephthah. And I thank you, Jesus, that you didn't just die simply to achieve one thing, salvation. You also died to enable us to be the sort of person that Jephthah never was, the sort of father that should have looked out for his daughter and rather could care less about her. Help us to be that sort of person, not because 
well, someone tells us that we should, rather because that's exactly what you did for us. That's the kindness that you showed to us. Help us, Jesus. Forgive us for those Jephthah-like, selfish moments in our lives. And help us to be like you. We pray this in your name. Amen.